This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor, and members of the military, and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our professions discount. So by registering at govx.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership and you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend 50, that's five zero dollars on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. Welcome to episode 352 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Will Chesney. Now, Will was a member of SEAL Team 6 along with his canine Cairo, and they were part of the team that ultimately killed Osama bin Laden, the man behind the terror attacks. 
So, of course, we discussed that event, but there are so many other layers to the story from Cairo's earlier deployments where he was almost killed, recovered, and then went back to duty about Will's TBI and PTSD and how ultimately man and dog helped heal each other and so many other takeaways from this conversation. Before we get to that interview, like I say, every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. And as I mentioned, this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men, women, and even canine stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. And as one more side note, I wanted to make sure that the book I wrote, One More Light, Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of the Firefighter, also came out this month, September, which is so pertinent to the fire service and all the associated professions. So that being said, it is my huge honor to introduce to you, Will Chesney. Enjoy. Will, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Ryan for connecting us. And secondly, thank you to you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Shout out to Ryan. <laughs> so where roughly on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Houston right now. We had that uh, storm come through. So just kind of hanging out here and seeing if, uh, yeah, hanging out in Houston. Good. Any any bad stories come out of that? I know it was a pretty sizable hurricane. Yeah, I lost my phone, so I've been kind of out of the loop trying to deal with all that. But I I, I think uh, I've been checking a little bit. I don't I don't know. I, uh, I don't think it was too bad. Okay. I'm Good. sure there's some families that were affected though, but I have uh, kind of out of the loop. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I like to start chronologically. So, tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. It was, uh, I'm an only child. I was born in Southeast Texas. Um, nothing too crazy. Just, uh, grew up in kind of a trailer park in Southeast Texas. Played football, of course, pretty much through, uh, middle school, a little bit of high school. Uh, you know, parents were pretty good to go. Grandparents were, uh, really great. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it was a pretty normal childhood, but I, uh, I left as soon as I graduated high school. Just wanted to uh, get out of the area, and join the Navy, and uh, see what else was out there. Brilliant. Now, were you a big kid, small kid, average size? About average size. Okay. So, was football something that you found, you know, you were naturally adept to? or Because I have seals on here that were, you know, monsters like Jocko, and then you have seals that were <laughs> small like Ryan that, you know, had to work hard to get to the strength and, and fitness that they found in the in the SEAL teams. Yeah, I had to work hard, but um, <clears throat> I guess that's what I noticed when I we had the athletes on the um, team. I remember one time I was doing bleachers and I was ahead of the athletes, and the coach called them out, and I was like, "Well, yeah, just got to work a little bit harder." And uh, I guess the diet, looking back now, would that would be a huge part. I wish my diet would have been better, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. So, um, what did that look like? <laughs> Tell me some of the foods. Yeah, it's just you know, Southeast Texas, a lot of fried food. It's not the healthiest. You know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, so we got by on what we got by with. So might not have been the best. But looking back on it now, I know diet's a huge part of all that stuff. But um, 
just remember having to try a little bit harder than everybody else. Yeah. So what about dogs? I mean, when you were a, a child, did you have dogs in the household? Yeah, we had a few small dogs, a few larger dogs growing up, some pit bulls, rottweilers and stuff like that. But nothing that we really trained too crazy with. They were just household dogs. Brilliant. But plenty of dogs growing up, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so with a lot of people that find themselves in either first responder professions or military um, especially people that have struggled, you know, later in their career. A lot of times, when you trace it back, there's also some sort of element of trauma in their youth. Is there anything in your childhood that you now, looking back, attribute to maybe one of those layers of trauma that you took through your career? Yeah, not a pretty, pretty normal childhood. Nothing too traumatic. Had a pretty good childhood growing up. Good, good to hear. Right. Well, then, what about? Yeah. Um, aspirations you said you joined the navy when you were going through high school was that always your goal or was it um you know 9-11 that turned you yeah i wanted to serve my country definitely 9-11 had a huge part but i wanted to just wanted to serve i, I said i grew up a little bit poor maybe <clears throat> it wasn't nothing too crazy we weren't super poor but i didn't there wasn't much around this area i wasn't a. I was a pretty smart kid but i wasn't a great student <laughs> so <laughs> I was pretty lazy. I can be pretty lazy sometimes, but um, I wanted to serve my country, like I said. And then being a SEAL, you get to do all that cool stuff, get to test myself, push it, and uh, it was really interesting. Um, didn't want to go to school. It was all more hands-on stuff. Obviously, get to shoot guns and blow stuff up. So that was uh, – I'm really – there's a lot of drugs kind of where I grew up. Um, glad I got out of the area instead of sticking around for a little bit. There's no telling what might have happened. Uh Instead, I joined the Navy and served my country. Got to test myself. I actually made it through Bud's training, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> it was uh, quite the venture. But uh, yeah, it was what I wanted to do. And uh, it was one of those things I look back on that uh, I thank God for. I found something that I didn't have to get paid for, something that I I probably would have died for. Like, you know, it was just something I knew what I wanted and nothing would stop me. And if I happened to not make it along the way, then it is what it is. At least I was having fun trying to get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you use the word fun. And I heard you mention that in the book. So I love listening to the mindset. I mean, Stu Smith, I think you did an interview with him not too long ago. He was on here and I remember him saying, people always ask, what should a seal look like? And he says, it's not about what they look like. It's about, you know, what's between their ears. So what was your mindset that allowed you to to get through, not only get through, but not even be rolled back when obviously the attrition rate was so high with the, the men each side of you. Like I said, just have fun. I, I made a lot of, uh, I joined the Navy just to be a SEAL and go test myself and all that stuff. But along the way, I made some of the best friends that I, I could have ever asked for. We, all we did was, uh, you know, it sucks getting through buds six, seven months of some parts are fun, but most parts just, it's a lot of pain. So in order to get through all that stuff, you just have fun with your friends when you can. And it's a lot of jokes and having, I don't know, man, you, you get through the hard evolutions. And then when you have time off, just take it easy and joke around. Now, when you were going through buds, because I heard again in, in the book, the kind of burning ambition to even level up after becoming a SEAL. At what point in your training did you start thinking about DevGuru, the you know, the uh, the elite of the SEALs? Oh, I didn't hear about it until I was in my first platoon. And then I heard a couple guys talking about it. It sounded pretty interesting. 
that's an understatement. But, <laughs> yeah, definitely an understatement. But you know, when I was going through buds, my main focus was making it through buds. You know, it's there's if people want to aspire to the to that level, then I would say just uh, I would focus on making it through buds first. Yeah, but yeah. it's a good it's a good goal. Yeah, sure, shoot for the stars. <laughs> Absolutely. So then, absolutely. <laughs> where did you find yourself as far as deployment the first time as a SEAL? Then, oh, first time as a SEAL was doing PSD in Iraq. I got to do a couple of ops, but they were pretty uneventful. <laughs> so, what I always like to ask people when I say "like," it's, it's a it's a poor choice of words, really. But the civilians of the world, you know, we we get to see a lot of war through television, through social media, and there's obviously a lot of polarizing viewpoints. Some have the, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out element, and the others have, you know, all war is bad. For me, you know, my the, the lens that I always want to get is the member of the military, the men or women are actually on the ground. When you were down there, were, were there any memorable events that happened where you saw the horrors that were going on that then kind of reinforced regardless of the politics that you were there to do some good in the world. Yeah, definitely. And there's, um, no matter what the politics are, there's, there's good and there's evil out there. It's, it's, it's a fact. I mean, people definitely know that there's good. I'm sure everybody can at least agree with that. And if people haven't seen evil, well, it's definitely out there. You can't have the good without the bad. And, uh, Oh, we were there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and are there any examples that you can think of? I mean, if they're not, it's fine. But is there, I know some people. There's, there's there's like a certain event that was the first time they saw, you know, the horrors that then, you know, stuck with them ever since. I mean, we relied on our intel people to give us good intelligence, and we usually got that. And you could just see it when we got there. They were always uh, willing to fight, or if they weren't, you could just tell. You could just tell them the the good from the bad. Yeah, there's a lot of events that was what our job was nothing in specific that stood out we were there to do a job and that job was to get rid of bad people yeah so then the other other question always align that with is it's intriguing hearing how these men and women um view these families in the in afghanistan and iraq and you know wherever they are and are kind of struck by the the norm the normalcy of everyone around the war so not the actual fighters but the people living in these cities was that something that struck you too seeing you know fathers and you know, husbands and wives and kids playing and you know the, the the same kind of family dynamic that you'd see in the u.s or the uk no of course not we're all human beings i mean we got to work with some of the local nationals those guys were great some of those guys weren't great some of those guys when i did a couple of sniper missions early in my career in iraq i mean i got along with those guys really well and then there were some people that we worked with, the local nationals, that were just not – they were bad people trying to embed with us. But no, to see regular families, of course not. We would uh, – you know, a lot of guys would give chem lights to the kids and all that stuff. Sometimes they would accept them and sometimes they would hate us and they wouldn't accept them. But no, just normal families. Sometimes we would show up to the wrong house um, and it was just a normal family. We would apologize and, you know, pay them for any damages move on it happens but we also saw the bad as well and you can definitely tell there's a difference between people a normal family coming out and looking and seeing what's going on and not knowing i've, I've seen that plenty of times especially being a sniper on a rooftop for a little bit of my career and then you can tell when the bad guys are <laughs> doing shady stuff sneaking around rooftops 
and yeah, doing whatever they do. You can tell the difference for sure. Yeah. No, I just think it's a, it's an important thing because again, at home, a lot of us are told, oh, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan, those are quote unquote the bad guys, meaning the entire country, which is you know a very blanket statement. So, um, well, you mentioned sniper. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me about that because you talk about one specific event um, as a sniper that I thought was very powerful. So, so what made you want to go the sniper route once you got in the teams? Um, yeah, once you make it through buds and you get to the teams and even you're still always working you still need to make yourself valuable it's just not like hey good job you made it through buds now you're here and everything's done you always have to keep improving yourself and um i guess when you get there you just there's different jobs with sniping and breaching diving jumping you just kind of explore all those options you have to be proficient at all of them but um, while you're being proficient at them, so I'm like, I just loved sniping. It was, I was a pretty decent shot, and it's just something that I was passionate about. And uh, I applied for sniper school over and over again. They set me up for breacher school, and nothing wrong with breacher. I wanted to go to that school, but um, I wanted sniper first, so I had to like pretty much, I had to be pretty persistent. They got mad at me for a little bit. <laughs> <'cause> I kept, <laughs> they did, but I was like, you know, I was just persistent. And they finally told me to stop asking, but I asked again and they, uh, it worked out well. I got sniper school, so it was all good. I can totally relate. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you just have to be persistent and try not to piss people off. Exactly. It's a fine line to navigate though. (laughs) I get, yeah, it's a fine line. They were getting a little mad. I'm like, come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) Were you able to, to tell the story of, of that first shot that you took when, um, the, the fighter on the rooftop? Yeah, um, brief overview would be, it was um, a second deployment, I think. Uh, we were in Iraq, working with the local nationals. I was a sniper on a roof. Uh, one of the local nationals called me over, and he said he saw some sketchy movement on the other rooftop that our guys were in- entering on. Um, that was the primary building. And uh, one of the SOPs that they had been doing was throwing grenades off the rooftops into the alleyways. And just the guy was looking, he was obviously sketchy. I was pretty, still pretty, I was a pretty new guy still. So, but the REs were the REs. And I actually had a local national up there with me to, uh, to confirm. But the guy was just jumping around the roof and just being shady. And I didn't want to throw in a grenade over and uh, ended up engaging that guy. And it was the guy that we were going after that night. He had actually killed a couple of Americans previously and they, uh, they've been looking for him for a while. So it ended up being a pretty good night. Yeah, now, how, how hard is that? And this seems like a very, very stupid question I'm about to ask you. But, you know, the, is, take World War II, for example. You know, you had the uniforms. You had two very obvious sides unless they were, you know, wearing each other's uniform. Now here you have, you know, as you just mentioned, civilians and fighters wearing exactly the same clothes. So how hard was it as a sniper to differentiate and, and the pressure of taking a shot or not taking a shot? Like I said, I was still pretty early in my career on there. So it was, uh, it was good to have the local national there with me to back me up. And also, like, if I didn't take that shot and the guy had thrown a grenade over and killed some of my friends... 
I would, uh, I don't know if I'd be able to live with myself on that one. But these days, after being around and being experienced for a while, you can just, it would have been no question about it. The guy was obviously not listening. He was, I mean, the guy was, he wasn't complying. He was being sketchy and it was no doubt about it. But, you know, early on in my career, you just, you just want to make sure you're doing the right thing. But it ended up, it ended up working out well. Absolutely. And for everyone listening, by the way, I highly recommend the book. I'm not going to pull out too many stories from there because it's a, a great read. Um, so what about being exposed to working dogs? When was your first uh, time alongside a canine? First time I saw a canine was uh, that same, it was a SEAL Team 4. They put on a dog demonstration on one of our training trips. And it was really cool. It was just a guy. I think they put one of our assaulters in a bite suit, had him run down the field. And the dog, you know, just the handler let the dog go, tracked or chased him down, tackled him. We all laughed. It was just a, it was a pretty basic but cool dog demonstration. Um, that was my first exposure to the dogs, but I didn't really see anything until uh, my first deployment with my squadron. And then I saw how valuable the dogs were. It was a, there's a saying in the book, it says, raise your hand. I remember being in the team room once and somebody saying, raise your hand if a dog has ever saved your life and pretty much everybody's hand in the team room went up with a story to tell, if not a, a couple of stories to tell about a dog saving their life. And on my first deployment with my squadron, I, I just saw it. It was, uh, it was great. I, I love dogs. I had dogs growing up. Like I said earlier, just because you become a seal doesn't mean you're done. I had to be, I had to find another job that I wanted to do. And I love job. I love dogs. I saw the value in, in the dog. If I had the chance to save one of my teammates' life, that would be, you know, it's a lot of extra work sometimes taking care of a dog. It's like babysitting a kid, and uh, sometimes you're not used, sometimes you are used, but I just, uh, when the dogs are used, they are very valuable, and they can save lives. And uh, I was willing to put in all that extra work to, uh, to have the opportunity. Plus, Dogs are used quite a bit, and if I can make myself more valuable by being um, experienced with a the dog, then I might be called to go on another mission. No, it does completely, absolutely. So, well, you talked about being uh, a squeaky wheel when it came to sniper school. So, tell me about your journey into DevGuru. Just, just the tenacity of you getting yourself there and the timeline. Uh, it was basically like going through buds all over again except it's all performance driven. It's a, everybody knows you're not going to quit. I mean, it's, it's a bunch of seals already. <laughs> so they know they're pretty tough, but, uh, it's a, it's a tough selection process. It's very hard, but it's just, it's basically going through buds all over again, but performance driven. And what was driving you to be in that team specifically? Was it just trying to, trying to punch through the ceiling of, of as, you know, as much training as you could get? Yeah, I had nothing else going on. It seemed like a pretty cool job. I wanted to see if they would uh, shit can me. <laughs> somehow, somehow I squeaked through. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, tell me about then the uh, the journey to actually becoming a handler yourself, and, and if there were any events prior to that that really made you decide to take that route. Uh, yeah, when I was overseas and I saw it, I brought it up. I saw the value of the dogs and just the job, and I brought it up and. I was told I'd be a handler when I got back. There was a dog that we had on my first deployment. His name was Falco. And I was supposed to get him on when we returned from that deployment. And 
he was a great dog. He had a couple of issues in the beginning, but he ended up being a, a very, very great, good dog. Um, uh, one night we were going after a couple of bad guys right before returning home from that first deployment. And uh, the two bad guys were set up, set up in an ambush. Falco ended up going in and engaging him. Unfortunately, Falco was shot through his chest a couple of times and he died. But, uh, you know, he laid down his life saving saving probably a couple of guys that night, at least from getting shot, if not killed. Um, so I didn't get Falco when we returned home, unfortunately. But um, when we got back, there was a, a, a bunch of new handlers. There was a few SEAL handlers and mastered arm, and mastered arm handlers. We use mastered arms as well to, uh, to be handlers. Sometimes they go through their own selection process. And, uh, so we had a, a group of new guys and a group of new dogs and we all went off to California to Adler Horse International. It was about, I think it was eight or nine week dog training school and it was great. It was great being away from, uh, being away from work and just being a hundred percent immersed into a great dog training program where we spent all day literally working our asses off with the dogs. And then when we weren't working, we were one-on-one -on -one in a hotel room with a dog, just growing that bond. And I think it was a, it was a great trip. It was, I think sniper school was one of the, one of the best schools I went to. And that, that dog training school was definitely up there as well. Yeah, well, you mentioned losing Falco. So I thought it was very powerful listening to, you know, how he was treated on the battlefield and then after. So kind of explain to people, you know, the, the way that warrior dog is treated versus one of you, you know, the human soldiers or members of the military. They're treated just the same. I mean, I had Falco tattooed on my arm, just like some of my teammates have tattooed on me. Um, they're how we describe it. And <clears throat> they're like, uh, I'm his dad and everybody else are his uncles. So we're pretty much one big family. We're, they're, they're treated just like any soldier. Uh, we ask a lot of these dogs, we ask them to go into a dark room and get into a fight with somebody trying to kill us and not let, let go. And unfortunately these dogs die for us sometimes. So we treat them, we treat them accordingly when they, uh, when they do die, their names go up. We have a memorial wall at the command. And right beside the memorial wall for the guys, there's a dog memorial specifically for the dogs right beside the guys. Um, we had a memorial service for Falco. He was cremated. We had a party. We celebrated his life. Um, even in the team room, they put up plaques for the dogs. So they're treated just like any of us. Beautiful. Well, I think that's the way it should be. So thank you for kind of illustrating that. Um, so what about yeah. finding Cairo? Tell me about that journey. Uh, so like I said, we returned from that deployment. Unfortunately, Falco was no longer with us. So, uh, we had a, <clears throat> we had a group of good trainers and handlers that went overseas and did a buy trip and purchased dogs. And, um, they had a bunch of brand new dogs for us. Like I said, we had a bunch of brand new seals and master at arms. And, um, we had a few weeks there at the command to have the trainers kind of evaluate us handling the new dogs, the new handlers evaluate have the trainers evaluate the new handlers handling the new dogs. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> she said. <laughs> so, um, we had good trainers at the command, good, uh, good head shed. 
they watched us put hands on the dogs and um, every dog is different just like every person right so we had a few weeks there just to kind of see what temperament the dog was and what temperament the handler was. Uh, the master at arms were previous handlers, dog handlers as well. So they had more experience handling dogs and less experience being seals. So the seals had less experience with the dogs and more experience being seals. So we would probably have first pick usually just, you know, just depending on the temperament of the dog. Um, since the master at arms could probably handle the dog a little bit better, they would be paired up with maybe a little bit more of the stubborn dogs. <laughs> but, uh, there's a couple of dogs I had my eye on in the beginning. One was Bronco and one was Cairo. And, um, the trainers made the call to give me Cairo. And I, I didn't really care either way. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just a, I was a pretty young guy. I was a seal. I, I wasn't a dog handler. I just did. I know what I'd seen on deployment. And, but as far as handling a dog, I had pretty much zero experience. That was a whole new world to get, um, to dive into. You know, I had to step out of my comfort zone and, you know, dogs don't speak human. So using your body language and voice infliction and all that stuff was uh, pretty new to me. And all that whole emotions run up and down the leash I had to get used to. And it was a new world I was stepping into, but it was really great to learn all that. Um, but like I said, I didn't know really much about temperaments of dogs and what I was looking for. I knew they were all, all the dogs that they selected were great workers and the trainers made the, made the choice to give me Cairo. And I think it was a pretty good choice. It worked out pretty well. Uh, I'd say so. So yeah, thanks guys. <laughs> <laughs> so for people listening, obviously a lot of us are aware of canine, maybe in the first responder community, the law enforcement side, Tell me the kind of um, the roles that these these dogs can play, and 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 you know how they are able to, to heighten your level of safety when you're on deployment. Uh, yeah, just the same as law enforcement. I mean, the dog just depends what dog you have, and <clears throat> like we use the Malinois, uh, the Belgian Malinois, or the Dutch Shepherd. Uh, the Belgian Malinois is just like the German Shepherd, just a little smaller, a little shorter hair, maybe a little more agile. But um, they can use they, be, they can be used for apprehension or for bite work, and uh, just like the Shepherds, except <clears throat> when we are working overseas, it's a little hotter. You know, we might be walking in a little ways, and we need the dogs to be a little smaller, a little more agile. And uh, the the Malinois are great for that. Uh, shepherds are great working dogs, but as far as other detection, you can you can teach them to te- to, te- to detect narcotics. Uh, we don't need that, so we teach them to detect explosive odor, which is a whole other evolution in itself. But that's what our uh, dogs are. They're dual purpose dogs for man odor and explosive odor. Now, when when I heard you, you know, kind of explaining that and some of the training, it kind of struck me. Um, you know, a question in my head: Do you think that more dogs within our military would keep some of these men and women safer with some of these IEDs that we're seeing, or is that a separate kind of uh, bomb odor? I mean, the explosive odor is very important. I think um, you can have single-purpose dogs that are made just for explosive odor that can focus just on that odor and maybe be a little bit uh, safer. With us, we were doing dual purpose because we needed to, them to find bad guys. So they needed to be trained on man odor, which was – once they had that down, it was pretty easy to keep them engaged. <laughs> it was the ex- – <laughs> they love that fight. 
it was the explosive odor that was harder to keep them uh, engaged on sometimes. But uh, we did it. You just have to put in the, the effort and put in the work and put in the hours and make sure that they are – you just got to keep it fun. Make sure the dog's happy. The dog wants to make you happy, and you just have to put in the work and make it as fun as possible. But it, it can be a task. But using a single-purpose dog and just keeping it updated on odor, on explosive odor, would be would be nice. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like that's what's killing so many of our servicemen and women. And you know, if if you were able to have such success within your team with the canines, it kind of makes me think: well, would that be a good application? You know, military wide, but I don't know. I'm just a fireman, <laughs> so. No, I think they are. It's just a hard. It's a. It's a long. It's a lot of work to keep these dogs up to date but i know the military has a lot of great dog programs for us we just had our program that we worked on and it was a lot of work just to keep that program up alone and you know there's a for that kind of demand of dogs it's a lot of explosive dogs it's it's not easy to find a dog that's a that's willing to do the work and then once they are willing to do the work you got to put in a lot of work to keep them up to date you know so but there are a lot of good programs out there there's definitely a bunch of good military programs brilliant right well then with cairo what, what's the first kind of memorable uh, mission that you guys ran together where he was actually able to do what he was trained for um let's see one of the first memorable ones it's just the first op that we ever went on it was my first overseas operation handling a dog so i was a little nervous i had a little bit of experience but I was still pretty new with my team as well, <clears throat> you know, a little bit, but not like, not like I've been around a long time. And then my first operation with the dog. So it's kind of nerve wracking. You don't want to mess it up and you never know. We put in a lot of work, you know, like I said earlier, it's, I have to keep up with all of my tasks as a seal, which is quite a bit. You know, there's a thing, a couple things that it goes into that. And then trying to prepare the dog to get ready for deployment was also a, a lot of work so you're putting in all that work and you're hoping the dog and you perform to the best of your ability when it finally comes down to it right so it's a little nerve-wracking but um we literally planned for we tried to plan for everything we like i said just the school that we went to alone in california was eight nine weeks and that was a great school but it didn't stop there we once we returned home training didn't end we um we went through every pretty much rehearsal everything that we could think of to get ready and uh finally show up to the compound overseas and we open the gates and there's a whole courtyard full of sheep and that's like the one thing that we didn't experiment with <laughs> see my dog would be gone <laughs> like, yeah you think what do you, you go with trying to attack him uh, I, I don't know just i don't think she should, i don't think she would actually kill him or anything but she'd certainly chase him and bite their ass <laughs> yeah, yeah, just go have fun. Yeah. So I wasn't sure. Like, that's the one thing that we didn't plan for was the whole, it was literally pretty, it was packed. It wasn't like you can't walk through it, but, and we're, we're having to be quiet too. So I'm just trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> it's like, we thought we were ready. We thought we were ready. You opened up the courtyard and it's just full of sheep. So, you know, we made it work. Yeah. Uh, I hoisted him up and put him on my back and we just made our way nice and quiet through the sheet. And, uh, the operation went off without a problem. Knowing what I know now though, because we did uh, practice that later on, I brought him around a couple of animals. He doesn't care about animals. And I mean, some dogs, you never know. Some dogs are a little bit animal aggressive and some dogs aren't. 
and I didn't know it at the time, but Cairo would have been just fine. He wouldn't have messed with the sheep at all. That's amazing. Now, that reminds me of another story. I'd love to, for you to tell that as well, if you wouldn't mind. Um, the baby story, because that, again, illustrates Cairo's temperament and the level of training combined. Yeah, we were doing a call out, getting uh, people to come out of the building. And some people weren't listening. And a woman had left her child wrapped up in some blankets. Um, really hard to see. So at the end of the call out, the call was made to send Cairo in to engage a guy that wasn't listening. Um, when I sent Cairo in, he actually went up to the bundle, <clears throat> the, the bundle of clothes that the baby was wrapped in. And uh, he didn't do anything. He just sniffed it. And then he split into the other room and engaged the guy that was hiding behind some women. And uh, we were able to get that guy under custody and question him. But it was pretty crazy how Cairo, some dogs, you know, the dogs talk with their mouth and they get excited. Sometimes they'll go into rooms and they'll pick up pillows and blankets. And Cairo didn't. He just, um, yeah, you know, it was lucky. He went into the room. He smelled the baby. He knew the baby wasn't a threat. And then went into the other room and engaged the threat. It was, uh, ended up working out well. That's incredible. Now, this is a complete side note then. Some of the breeds, German Shepherds, Malawis, um, you know, pit bulls, obviously have uh, a bad name in the civilian community, usually because of more isolated incidents. What's your perspective as a canine handler on breeds, you know, specifically just blaming an entire breed versus either temperament of that breed or even, you know, the factor that we have as, as handlers or owners on the behavior of that dog? Yeah, I think dogs are just like, people every person's different everybody has their own temperament so but if you're getting a breed know what kind of breed you're getting as well so it's not like if i if you buy a malinois know what you're buying you're buying a working dog it's like buying a husky or even a lab is a hunting dog it's a working dog they have a lot of energy sometimes so i think to lump all so say pit bulls into one bad category i had pit bulls growing up that were awesome so i think that's just i think that's pretty stupid um I think it's on the owner to know what kind of dog breed you're getting. And then if you do get a dog that needs work, it's on you. It's on you as a, as an owner, as a human to give that dog a good home and give it the proper training it needs and the proper stimulation it needs. And sometimes you will get an asshole dog. Some, sometimes it just happens, man. Sometimes you get asshole people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it happens. I don't know why. And if, if you have that kind of dog, then you just, Take it to somebody that might be able to untrain that bad temperament out of them. And if they give you, maybe try a couple of different people, reliable people. And if you just have an asshole dog, then maybe that, that dog needs to go to a different home. And you just need to know that and accept that. Yeah, absolutely. That's the only problem with the asshole people is they seem to get a lot of television time. <laughs> Whoops. It happens, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, that's my advice. I don't know what else... No, that's brilliant. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. So, obviously, you know, the, the back end of your story is definitely a powerful mental health element to it. Um, you talk about this in the book. You know, you're out there as a SEAL yourself. Tell me about the impact when you started losing some friends. I mean, you have, you have one impact as far as within the mission itself, but what was the kind of ripple effect when you started losing brothers out there? Yeah, it was pretty significant. It was... Um... I would say that was what affected me the most. Um, 
I had traumatic brain injury as well. TBIs, there's a lot of blast exposure over the years, whether it's breaching or rockets or whatever. Um, I think that <clears throat> multiple TBIs over the years, along with some loss of my friends, uh, my hair fell out a few times. I said it was alopecia, which alopecia is either hereditary or stress induced. And it wasn't pretty, it wasn't that hard to figure out. I lost, you know, my hair would fall out in large clumps after I lost a few of my friends. So I think that had some stress. I think that was a lot of stress. Um, I think that along with the TBI and some also self-induced or self-medicating, you know, I take personal responsibility for a lot of my actions as well, but I think all three of those combined, um, sent me into a, a really bad place. I was blown up in 2012 by a hand grenade. And I think that was kind of the tipping point to where I was no longer able to work or function, or at least where, uh, I can probably, I can pull it together and work, but I don't, I didn't feel as if I was safe. I, I might end up getting somebody killed or myself killed, which would not be clear. But you know, if I make a mistake, I started getting real bad migraines and my memory went to shit and a bunch of other problems. Um, when yeah. when did you first start seeing that? Because I want to get to that in more detail, kind of later in in the you know the timeline, as it were. But when did you find yourself kind of leaning on alcohol or some some other elements with it when you were still deploying? I think it was a slow progression. I think I drank in the military even beforehand, but I mean, we used to go out and have fun and celebrate with my friends. <clears throat> and there's a difference between that and using alcohol as a medication to either sleep or get through some stuff. So it's, 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 you can't exactly put my finger on when that transition happened, but I think it was a slow transition over the years. I mean, the more brain injury and the more loss of my friends and then the more alcohol on top of that, I think it just, it turned from one thing to a different thing. Yeah. Well, I think it's an important perspective as well, because I think that's what happens to most people. People think that, you know, PTSD is from an acute event. So if you weren't at the World Trade Center or the Vegas shooting, then you've got no business feeling the way you feel. Where I think a lot of us, it's, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the military as a firefighter, as a police officer, as a corrections officer, whatever it is. And, and if it's that chronic as opposed to acute, it sneaks up on you and, and you don't realize until you're about to drown. That's it. I mean, I can go with anybody. We all deal with our own trauma just because I'm a SEAL. It's just, I'm, I'm doing all this just to uh, see if I can get people's attention. But yeah, but that's a good point. You hear Navy SEALs having some issues. It was a slow progression, but that can go with anybody, whether you're exposed to your, your paramedics seeing terrible things every night or a police officer getting exposed to terrible things or any, anybody that's getting repeated head, head trauma over the years, you know, you don't have to have one horrific event, but if you're exposed to small tragic events, we all deal with our things in, in different ways. Everybody, everybody has their ups and everybody has their downs. You just got to get through them. But yeah, mine was a slow progression. Um, I think a lot of the concussion blasts over the, over the years, I was a pretty high functioning individual. And I was a pretty happy person. And I, I did pretty well in my career. I made it, uh, I made it pretty far. And I got to participate in some pretty cool things. So I was pretty high functioning. And then all of a sudden, I don't know where it happened or what happened exactly. But I think with all of those things, with the <clears throat> repeated blast exposure and the loss of my friends and the alcohol on top of that, 
I went from from one job that I loved to not being able to function barely. I was I ended up drinking myself out of a job once I I couldn't be in the military anymore, so they medically retired me. And then I drank myself out of my second job. And then I ended up moving back in with my parents for a while and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I just couldn't, uh, I just couldn't figure it out. It's your own brain. So it's kind of a weird place to be in, right? My, my brain wasn't functioning properly. I knew I was, excuse me. I knew I could function at one level. And then all of a sudden it's either I'm making this stuff up or uh, my shit's not working right anymore. And I don't, uh, yeah. But me putting alcohol on top of that definitely was not <laughs> the right answer. <laughs> I was basically drinking myself to death. So now, what about yeah. your sleep? How was your sleep through you know deployment and then onwards? Well, I would drink myself to sleep. Mm-hmm. So I would take sleeping meds, but I didn't want to take all the antidepressants the VA wanted to put me on or any of the uh, Ambien or stuff. I had enough problems with the booze. <laughs> um. So I didn't want to take all that stuff. I would just drink myself to sleep. But there's there's great people and there's great programs out there. I eventually, <clears throat> one of my best friends, his name is Jared Shaw. He drugged me. So I was just secluding. I, I ended up getting a house and, you know, I spent a couple months at home with my parents and visiting them and I ended up getting a house, but I still wasn't the same. Uh, my brain wasn't functioning. I just wasn't, I wasn't the same person. So my buddy Jared Shaw drugged me to, uh, he drugged me out of my house and got me to my first kind of brain treatment center. And then it's been a long journey since then, and I'm still working on it, but I've learned a few things about, <clears throat> you know, your definitely diet has gotten better. I learned about fasting and, um, a few brain treatments that I attended were great. And, um, try to get into meditating and breathing and yoga and a couple of other healthy options that, uh, seem to help me, but it's still a process. Absolutely. Well, I think that's what people miss about injuries is, you know, they don't just go away. You learn to to mitigate the symptoms. And you know, obviously, you, you're trying to get to the core, but damage is damage. So I've got, for example, a back injury that I can function extremely well. But if I don't do my movement practices, the pain starts to come back because the injury is right. still there. And it's the same, mm-hmm. I'm sure, with the TBIs. But what's interesting with TBI, I had a few conversations with um, one of your fellow SEALs, Dr. Kirk Parsley who is like, you know, sleep medicine guru now. And um, he was talking about sleep deprivation and TBI actually mimic each other. The the myelin sheath on the nerve degenerate on both of those. So for your profession and for, say, law enforcement, and, you know, let's also look at football and, you know, mixed martial arts, where you've got TBIs and then you're coupling it with sleep deprivation, whether it's shift work, like, you know, when you're on deployment and women were working, or whether it's, shitty quality sleep because we're drinking ourselves to sleep or we're taking ambient which doesn't put you to sleep it makes you unconscious a very different thing you're then amplifying all those areas so tbi and sleep deprivation on top of each other is a is a you know toxic cocktail yeah definitely i think they all start adding up and when i was 20 in my 20s it was okay i'm only in my 30s i'm 36 now but i think with everything it just i feel it a lot more these days i don't drink anymore so i quit boozing but that doesn't mean i i have a, a sleep apnea machine which of course i fucking love that thing <laughs> <laughs> so i went the last you know two weeks without using it and i went shit on my diet and I, it was just like i uh, just because i'm not boozing anymore doesn't mean i can't feel like shit you know 
I definitely feel it. I feel it today and I've been back on track for a couple of days now and I'm still trying to recover from my, so think about if I wasn't using all of that stuff, I was eating like shit, not using my sleep machine and I was drinking on top of that. I'd probably end up getting sick. My immune system would completely shit the bed. But now that I'm I'll watch my diet and I fast, I'm going to fast for, I'm going to probably fast for a few days and get back on track and use all the tools that I'm supposed to be using. And, uh, yeah, in my brain fog, I can feel it in my head. I guarantee you it's going to clean up. No problem. Yeah, well, I, mean, I have it. And I only just did shift work for 14 years. you know. And I, I did martial arts a lot, so I'm sure there was some head trauma yeah. in there too. But, yeah, that, yeah, that's my biggest complaint. And then tinnitus as well. But I actually got migraines yeah. for many years too. And I know you talk about your horrendous migraines. So there's definitely parallels. I mean, I wasn't blown up. I'll tell you, know, I'll tell you that right now. But... Um, yeah, even, even the lesser version of what you went through can still have, you know, an impact on brain health. Yeah, but I wouldn't even call it the lesser version because everybody goes through their own stuff. And like you said, so you can relate. You just did your, my, my story just looks different than yours, but you, yeah, those migraines were terrible. I think it was, um, you're probably a little stressed. I was, I was definitely a little stressed. I think that had a lot to do with it. And now that I, um, kind of have a different approach to life. My migraines aren't nearly as bad. I mean, my life's not perfect, but I can't complain. My sleep has improved. I don't booze anymore. I, um, yeah, I just do the best I can every day. I, I try to do a lot of breathing. I, I pray every morning. I, I try to do some breathing when I do that and stretch. And that's kind of like my anchor in the morning. I at least get out there and move around a little bit and do some deep breaths and pray. And then I'll uh, see where that leads me. Excellent. I mean, that's, that's such a, a great, you know, morning routine as well. I think so many of us get monkey mind on top of the brain fog, you know, the brain just won't shut the fuck up. So. Right. <laughs> I, think, I know, man. If I can at least give that 10, 15 minutes in the morning, it's at least something. Yes, absolutely. Well, I want to go back chronologically because there's some, you know, big benchmarks that we haven't got to yet. The first one is um, Cairo shooting because obviously that's a very powerful moment and another layer of trauma for both of you, him and you. So tell me about that. Uh, yeah, it was kind of like um, the same event where Ky or Falco got shot. <clears throat> it was just um, we were a different part of Afghanistan. We were on our way to the target compound. They somehow figured out we were coming, and they fled the target on some motorcycles. Before we could uh, engage them, they made the bad guys made their way into a tree line. We weren't allowed to engage the tree line, so. We landed the helicopters a safe distance away and we made our way up to there. And we tried to get them to come out and comply, but bad guys usually don't listen. <laughs> so eventually the call was made to send the dog in. Um, Cairo ended up finding the guys, engaging them. And he got them to show their hand before they can engage us. Um, unfortunately, he was shot in the process as well. Um, it ended up being the guys had, uh, they were trying to get us to come into the trees and there was a guy up high with an automatic weapon that was going to open fire on us. So if it wasn't for Cairo, there's no telling, you know, who would have gotten hit if, if not killed. So, so that night, you know, after I sent them, I, I started hearing gunfire and I immediately knew that, um, something was going on, obviously, you know, that Cairo was probably, uh, Kyra probably engaged the uh, the guys, so I started to recall him. After a certain amount of time, I knew something that something was probably wrong because Kyra listened. Kyra listened pretty well 
and the fact that he wasn't making it back to me was weird. So I knew something was probably wrong. Um, ended up being he got shot through his chest and his leg, and I had to put a steel plate in his leg later on. But since he was shot through his leg, there was a low wall we had to send him over to get into the trees, and I, I don't think he could make his way back over that wall. So I think he had to find a br- uh, he had to find a break in the wall. And he eventually made his way all the way back around, and I could see him off in the distance. And uh, as I was making my way towards him, he collapsed. And if anybody knows anything about Belgian Malinois, they don't collapse. <laughs> they just uh, um, So I, I immediately thought he was dead. And uh, I knew the guys had the firefight under control, so I didn't have to make my way up there. I made my way over to Cairo. Another one of my teammates that was on the line made his way back towards Cairo because he knew that he had been shot and he knew that he wasn't needed up there. He was a medic and he knew that Cairo probably needed him. So I made my way over to him and I saw that he was still breathing, which I was really happy about that because I really honestly, I thought he was immediately dead just the way he just tipped over and collapsed. Um, so such a terrible circumstance, but it was pretty cool to see, you know, all that training and effort that we put in before we spent quite a bit of time training and um, going over different rehearsals and under such a terrible situation, it was really cool to see just how we ended up saving Cairo's life. You know, if it wasn't for my teammate coming back and helping, you know, I might not have been able to get, I had to get Cairo's medical kit out. We carried a specific medical kit just for the dogs. I had to get his muzzle on and his vest off and all of his gear off and, um, you know, having him there to assist me just made it go so, so quick. Just watching that teamwork happen. As I was taking his vest off and putting his muzzle on, he had his kit open and had his fingers inside of his chest. And uh, I would definitely say we, we saved his life. But as we're doing that, the, my other, my head shed um, had the helicopter coming in to pick us up. So as he's stuffing gauze in the Cairo's chest, the, the helicopter's making its way towards us. Um, the pilots didn't have to come in. You know, it's, it's just a dog. They didn't have to put their lives on the line to come in and pick Cairo up. They, you know, we were still in a gunfight at the time. Uh, but they did. So um, my teammate, you know, stuffed, stuffed his fingers in his chest and got the bleeding to stop, got him stable. As soon as he was done doing that, the bird landed. Um, I picked Cairo up and ran with him onto the helicopter. Uh, there was another medic on the helicopter that helped um, work on Cairo until we got back to the base. Once we returned to the base, there were no veterinarians. Um, so actual surgeons had to perform uh, work on Cairo. Um, you know, they didn't have to do that, but they treated them just like a soldier. They ended up getting them stabilized and they did what they had to do. And, um, once they got them stable, we got them to Bagram Air Force Base where the veterinarians were. And, uh, he wasn't looking good. He was looking pretty rough. So I wasn't sure if he would pull through the night, but um, he did. He made it all. He made it through the night. He would just looked a little rough. I laid there with him next to him the whole night just in case. But uh, it's crazy just how much pain these dogs can take. Um, the next day he was moving pretty slow. I've never seen him move that slow, but uh, there's some good pictures of it in the book. He had a cast on and he had a fat face from all the air. <laughs> you know, all the air went to his face and he had been, 
he had two tubes in his lungs. He had a tracheotomy. He had, I mean, he was looking really rough and he had to get outside to use the bathroom. And it was definitely by far the slowest I've ever seen him move in his life, but he made it all the way. I mean, this is the next day after getting shot twice, he was outside using the bathroom. So just the fact that he could make it all the way down the hall and outside was, it was impressive, man. If I got shot through my chest, I don't know if I'd be moving around the next day. And then the day after that, he was like, back to his normal self he had all of his tubes out he had sunglasses on he had a cast <laughs> on but he was almost back to his normal self so it's just crazy to see the amount of pain and just that these dogs can take and, i mean cairo cracked his canine in half once and i would have never known unless i, I found the canine in the in the kennel and saw it it's just crazy well we had one dog get shot through his eye and it came out the back of his head and that dog continued to work for years <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it's just these dogs do amazing things. You know, unfortunately, when they do get shot, though, that they just don't make it sometimes because it is a it's a large bullet going through a, a pretty small dog. And but when they do pull through, man, their pain tolerance is crazy, and they just all they want to do is work and make us happy. And so as long as they're able to do that, they they stay happy, and they're they're great animals, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's such a powerful story for two reasons. Firstly, obviously, Cairo's resilience and, you know, the other warrior dogs out there and what they do and the sacrifice, excuse me, the sacrifices they make. But the other side is the training, not only Cairo's own training and the fact that he was able to facilitate protecting your, you know, your uh, group, but also that sequence of events after the medic that, that helped and then, you know, the pilots that came in and then the doctors after that. Again, it's one of those stories that had people not taking their job seriously anywhere along that row of dominoes, Cairo probably would have died. And it's the same with humans. I think it's something that we have to understand in our professions. If we don't take our training seriously, you could be that weak link that causes someone to die. 100%. And not only that, <clears throat> he recovered, that was before the Bin Laden mission. So if he would have died, there's no telling how that would have affected future events. But you're right. It's a uh, can't stress that enough i mean i literally saw him in the distance he had been shot with an ak-47 round twice which is a pretty big deal if people don't know that um i saw him collapse literally tip over and it's not our first rodeo we lose dogs all the time i immediately thought he was dead so time is kind of important to get him medical care because it's like holy shit he's dead <laughs> so for my buddy just to even be so well trained to know that he's needed back there it was just the beginning of that. Yeah. So it's, I can't stress it enough. Even the helicopter pilots, they're like, yeah, who, who gives a shit? Like, it's just a dog, but we're going to lay it out there to pick him up because he's part of the team. Yeah. I'm absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing to listen to that story. Well, you mentioned the Bin Laden raid, so that would be a good segue then. So lead me through Cairo's recovery and then, and then how you guys found yourself reunited for that. Yeah, so we sent him after all those people, even the people, they sent him to Lackland Air Force Base. And uh, I wasn't ever sure if he would work again. You know, getting shot's a pretty big deal. But they got him fully recovered and back to working. And um, I think the only people that, the only thing people really know about Cairo is the fact that he was on the big mission. But there's so much more to him than that. I mean, like I said, we just went over the story where he was shot. We went on. <clears throat> probably hundreds of other missions um, when I had him he was my primary dog and then once I didn't have him anymore he was a spare dog where he got to do 
lots of other great things. And then even towards the end of his life, he did, you know, it's, um, it sucks losing him, but he did some pretty amazing things even towards the end of his life. So it's, uh, it's great to be able to tell, you know, not just a big piece of history, which we were a part of. It's great to tell that, but it's, it's good to get, there's also some fake stuff that was put out there after we completed the mission and just some things that weren't completely accurate. Like he had titanium teeth and he could fly <laughs> laser beams coming out of his ass, but Dogzilla. It's good. It's a, a, Dogzilla. He was a, it was a big piece of history and he was a big part of that piece of history. So it's, um, it's an honor to be able to tell his story and get the truth out there. But as far as our responsibilities that night, it was, um, he made a full recovery. I was no longer going to be a dog handler. So I handed him over to the kennel and I was just, um, going back to being an assaulter and he was going to be a spare dog. I was at a school with one of my best friends. His name is uh, Nick check. Um, he's no longer with us. He died on a hostage rescue mission overseas, but I was at a, I was at a school with him in Arizona and, uh, we're about two to three days into the school and I get a call from my boss saying to get on a plane that night and I was coming home and to grab Cairo and to be in the team room the next day. So I was, uh, it was pretty normal for things to be going on. We were fairly busy and I was 20 something years old. I didn't really care what was going on. I didn't have much else going on in life. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, being a seal is a pretty all encompassing job. So I was pretty busy doing that. Um, so I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, um, check out of the school and head, I'll see you in the morning. And I go back to the classroom and I talk to my, like I said, my best friend, Nick, I'm like, Hey man, we're going home. We're getting called back. And he's like, no, not me. It's just you. And I, I just thought that was really weird because Nick, he was a, he was a really good guy. He was a better operator than I was. He was, he was a real solid guy. So I was like, why would they be calling me back and not you? And um, yeah, I didn't really care either way. So I was like, well, have fun at this school by yourself. <laughs> that sucks for you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so I made fun of him a little bit, you know, probably slapped him in his mouth. I'm just kidding. He would have beat me up. But uh, <laughs> told him to have fun at the school by himself. And I hope I get to go do something cool. And just made fun of him. And um, he ended up telling everybody. So I checked out of the school. It was kind of a pain in the ass. I think I ended up just leaving because I couldn't figure out the proper channels and paperwork and I had a flight to catch. And since I ended up just leaving, when the people asked where I went the next day in class, he ended up telling everybody I quit. So that was pretty, that was pretty nice of him. He said it was too hard. <laughs> he said it was too hard. You know, SEALs are not known for quitting. So I guess when somebody in the classroom asked what happened to me, he told everybody that I quit. Which is, yeah, I guess he had the last laugh. Um, so I ended up going back, going back home and grabbing Cairo and showing up in the team room. And we uh, did some training. Eventually we were told what was happening, who we were going after. We kept it kind of vague in the beginning. And then finally we were told, um, made it our way overseas. And uh, that night, mine and Cairo's responsibilities, like I said earlier, was to detect any man or explosive odor. <clears throat> so when we landed, we did sweeps of the perimeter. I was looking for any explosives, any tunnels, any uh, booby traps, 
once we felt the perimeter was secure, we made our way to the inside and we started doing sweeps on the uh, first, second floor, looking for the same thing. Anywhere somebody might be hiding in the explosives, I figured there might be some sort of escape room or hidden room. Um, eventually, um, the call was made to Exville. Um, we made our way to Exville where some pretty amazing things happened. I mean, I, this obviously goes in, into way more detail in the book. This is just a brief overview, but we conducted sweeps to the first, second floor, made our way to Exville, and you know the, the mission wasn't over. We knew that we had gotten him, but we still had to make it home. So um, it's not like we stopped to celebrate. Um, there was some very heroic stuff that happened that whole entire night. Um, we ended up having to, you know, one of the helicopters crashed. A couple guys ended up getting a firefight, but we ended up accomplishing the mission and um, didn't really sink in until we landed back on base and I remember walking in through the hangar and that's when it really kind of sunk in that everybody was going to make it because we you know we didn't expect to make it back we figured something might go wrong I mean our job was pretty dangerous as it was in the beginning being a SEAL is just dangerous period you're going after bad guys that want to kill you so it's always dangerous just who we were going after was maybe a little bit more dangerous we expected you know something to happen so when I land or when we landed and I looked around the helicopter or the hangar and just um, knowing that we landed back safe and everybody was still alive. I think a couple of guys got some shrapnel. You got fragged a little bit, but nobody cares. <laughs> everybody was good. Everybody was alive. We accomplished the mission. And it was just, it was, man, it was, that was the moment it just kind of sunk in. And I got to do the whole thing with Cairo. So I got to bring my dog. That was, that was really cool. But and it was still wasn't over then. We still had a lot of work to do. But that was just kind of the moment I knew everybody was going to be okay. And it was done. It's amazing. Absolutely. Now, now, just, you know, again, you don't have to be specific at all. With him killed, did you see any change in, you know, the, the arena, the, the months and weeks, excuse me, the weeks and months following that as far as enemy resistance? I was no longer on deployment. We ended up returning home. And as far as things changing, definitely things changed as far as the personal, personal side. I would say as far as the whole command goes as well. We had a helicopter crash not too long after that where we lost a lot of people. Um, so I think things definitely changed after that. I also had started dealing with my own personal issues after that as well. So, Yeah, well, let's, let's walk through that then. So I, I know it seems like one of the key events was, you know, your TBI, the, the, the wounds that you sustained with the grenade. So if you want to talk us through that and then, like you said before, your journey kind of spiraling downward after that so we can get to the recovery element. Yeah, definitely just um, finish that up and I had some, like I said, we had extortion, the helicopter crash. Um, that was pretty traumatic. After that, my grenade injury happened. I had some drinking issues. Um, after the grenade injury, it just wasn't the same. That was my ex exit in the military. It happened in 2012. We tried for about three years to see if we could help, but they, my, my head shed and my team, team leaders, um, try to fix me. Basically they sent me through everything that they possibly can, literally everything. And, uh, it took about three years, couldn't fix me. And by 2015, I was out of the Navy. Um, then it was just pretty much, it got really bad after that. I lost 
that's the only thing that I had known was being a SEAL. So I lost all of my family. I had my family back home, but a lot of people had already passed by then. So it was good to see my mom and dad. But my, as far as job family goes, all, I didn't really keep in contact with a whole lot of people. It was just, uh, it was a, not a good place to be in. And then I started drinking a lot more and I gained a lot of weight. It was a bad place. My brain wasn't functioning well. It was, it was at my worst. I would say when I exited the year, maybe a year or two after I exited the military was when I was at my worst. And I got through it. Um, luckily I didn't die. I almost died a few times, just drinking related incidences and dumb stuff. Luckily I'm still here. I thank God for that. And, um, like I said earlier, my buddy Jared Shaw <clears throat> kind of reached out and drugged me to a, a brain treatment place uh, through the Brain Treatment Foundation, and they got me on the path to start getting better. I um, eventually quit drinking after that brain treatment. Um, I just tried to try to make some different lifestyle changes, whether it's you know, I was trying my fasting, try to meditate, I tried different methods of breathing, try to clean up my diet. There's all kinds of different modalities that, um, you know, dogs are a huge part of that. I use, I have a couple of service dogs. Um, you know, Cairo helped me get through some pretty tough times. The transition out of the military was really tough. Uh, his end of life was pretty tough as well, but, you know, having him around was definitely a modality that was great for me to use. I think, um, I think if you're a dog person, having a dog around can definitely help you out. I got a good buddy of mine, Mark Simos, who just uh, got himself a dog, and he seems to be much happier. You know, he's like, and he's like, it was thanks to you. He's like, you kind of made me realize having a dog around can make you, can be a good tool if you get the right dog and send it to the right training. And he ended up getting a dog, and he seems pretty happy. So, well, that was something that struck me when in the book you talk about you used to be able to take Cairo home, then there was a, a policy change and then you weren't able to and he had to stay at the kennel. And it seemed like there was a lot of a lot of time those later years where you just physically weren't with each other. Um, from my perspective, what I see now is the same thing in, in a lot of my professions, whether they're officially a therapy dog or whether it's someone who just has a dog. The healing element of, of canines, actually, and horses as well, equine therapy seems to be very powerful, but definitely having dogs is so healing and the irony is we used to actually have dogs in fire stations a hundred years ago you know and uh, you know they kept the rats away and all that stuff and then we actually took them away and now i think we're starting to see dogs going back in for a different reason so you know what tell me about that when you were finally able to have Cairo with you all the time what did you observe within yourself um like i said it was it was just good to have him home we had been through quite a bit together and like you said you know the value of dogs and it doesn't have to be a dog like whatever floats your boat man go get you a service pig or you know whatever makes you happy go get you a parrot but uh for a lot of people it's dogs and um you know Cairo wasn't a service dog he was a working dog he um he was an attack dog <laughs> but towards the end of his life you know he, he did it was just good to be able to take care of him I mean think about the dog that you have at home or a pet that you love that you have at home. And uh, <clears throat> think about how much you love that animal and all the stuff that you've been through. And uh, now me and Cairo got to, we had that bond along with him getting shot for me, literally almost dying for me, going on hundreds of operations together, getting for, to participate on in one of the world's most famous missions, or largest mission, whatever. 
whatever you want to call it. So that bond was pretty, it was a pretty strong bond. I loved him quite a bit, if that makes sense. And then, um, you know, he did quite a bit for me and to be able to take care of him and know that he had a good end of life was, it was very important to me and I got to do that for him. So uh, I guess that's where the value comes across as I wouldn't call him a service dog, but you know, I was going through my own personal issues as well. And he had a pretty shit go towards the end of his life. So for me to be able to make sure he was as comfortable as possible was very important to me. Yeah, well, flipping it around, just like you said, Cairo obviously was in the same battlefield as you. And you mentioned seeing almost like PTSD within him. So what were some of the, the things that you almost recognized in his behavior? He got weird around thunderstorms. So that was a uh, different to see, you know, he never, <clears throat> he'd been around quite a bit of gunfire explosions, helicopter rides. <clears throat> but then all of a sudden, once I got him retired, thunderstorms would get to him. He would just try to hide under stuff and cower. And I think he actually pissed the bed once. So that was really weird to see. So he definitely had some sort of effects, I guess, from getting shot. Yeah. Now, in, in the book, you, I think it's at the very beginning, you start with, with a quote. You say that buying a dog is like a small tragedy. You know on the very first day how it will all turn out. And that you know resonated so deeply. I've had dogs ever since I was a little boy, um, usually yeah. German Shepherds as well. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, that's my wife, funnily enough, was so resistant to getting to know Nikita, my one, because of that same thing. She had a heart broken by her last dog. And it took literally yeah. about four years for her to finally open up. Because like you said, it's the journey that you have to enjoy. You know, that's going to happen. You know, we might die first. Who knows? But you um, know. to not have a dog just because of fearing the grief at the end, it, you know, it, it's the wrong way of thinking about it. I agree with that. And then I also think I have too many dogs sometimes. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, we just lost one about, it was about a year ago now, not too long ago. She died at six. All of a sudden she was great. She was a uh, Hagen. She's in the book as well. She was a little 50 pound female Malinois. We think something was wrong with her because she was so tiny, but she was a really great dog. She was one of those special dogs, just like Kyra was. And then all of a sudden at six, she died one night instantly just took her to the vet and brought her in the back and she was gone after that so never saw her again but you know that hurt real bad but i also have you know i still have a couple of more dogs and we just kept another one so you can look at it either way i mean the dogs are a pain and if you do get a dog just know that you know you have to take care of it it's going to be a lot of work to get in a puppy but once you do have the dog there you put the right training and effort into them they're they're a great tool. They're great. They make you happy. They can make you happy, but, um, you know, it's a lot of work sometimes as well, but I, I get what she's, I get what she means. It, it, it sucks losing them every time. Uh, every time you buy one, you know, they're not gonna, you know, they're going to go. But then again, like you said, you never know if you, the dog might outlive you too. So you just got to live life to the fullest. And if the dog makes you happy, go get yourself a dog. Exactly. Well, my dad actually was, is a veterinarian, retired now. So I grew up around, nice. you know, like you were saying, the, the surgery side, you know, seeing these, these dogs not shot, usually obviously hit by cars or something. So I remember doing mm -hmm. emergency surgeries with him, watching, assisting, um, but then yeah. helping euthanize as well. And it was heartbreaking, but there's that humanitarian element. And it's, it's funny because I had conversations with people on this podcast about that concept for humans you know there's a certain point where they're suffering so much that it's the oh, right yeah. thing to do to let them transition of course 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, I agree. For us, it was uh, she was gone anyways. Um, so harmonia attacked her brain. So it's just it was a pretty easy call. But sometimes, if they're not going to have a good quality of life, then yeah, <clears throat> it's just something you have to do. And it's just it sucks every time, especially if it's a really good dog that you put a lot of work into. But um, it is. It's part of. I mean, I just thank God that I got such a great dog. Because you could end up getting a, a shit dog. <laughs> no matter how much work you put into it, you just have a, a suck dog. And so I just, uh, you know, I only got six years with her. And Cairo, I only got 10 years with him. But that's not a bad push, man. You know, it sucks. I wish they would have lasted till 15. But I'm just, I'm very thankful for the time that we did have together. Absolutely. Well, speaking of, you know, um, their health. Just with the background that you have, obviously the the level that you are at working with dogs, what are some of the common mistakes that you see some civilians making when it comes to training and then also you know exercise and feeding their dogs? Just depends on the dog that you have. Would you say just educate yourself, know what kind of dog you have. You know, if I I have two Malinois, so the the tools in my toolbox might be a <clears throat> a lot more um, like I might not only use reward or treat based training or clicker training, I keep it as happy as possible as much as possible. But I have Malinois who also, you need a, a stern hand sometimes. So sometimes I need to use a choke chain. Most of the time I don't need a prong, but if that's the tool that you need, if you have a high energy dog, sometimes you might need to bump it up a level. You just, it's on the owner to know what kind of dog you have and what kind of tools are going to best, communicate the message clearly to the dog because the dog doesn't speak your language you have to figure out a way to communicate with the dog and so you want to pick the best tools that's going to get the communication clearly across so if you have a pug you might not need to get a prong collar and choke that shit choke choke that thing (laughs) (laughs) you know you just need to get a little clicker and some treats and your little pug will be fine but if you have a full-blown boy Malinois <laughs> who's a monster, you might want to go get a choke chain or a prong collar or an e-collar. Or, you know, if you have a, a low-tempered female Malinois, you might just be able to get by with reward-based treat training. It's all on it's all on you to educate yourself and know what kind of dog you have and always just be careful. Just do the research on the dog. If you have a high-temperament, highly aggressive dog, know what you have. If you have a Shih Tzu or a Pug, know what you have. And then just train yourself on how to clearly communicate with your animal. Make him happy. Try to keep it as happy as possible. And that's about all you can do. Love that. Well, I'm glad that you said that about the prong collar because that's what I use with mine. Purely because any other collar she would just choke herself on. So choke she was herself. Far less well, it doesn't com- make any sense. No. So right. whereas this, she'll walk alongside me. But if she gets that prey drive of a squirrel... Something she's got, she's got a thing about bikes too. If you're on a motorbike or, yeah. or a cyclist goes by, she'll, you know, she doesn't lunge at them, but you know, but it's just that little impulse right. to stop her when she does pull. But that's once in a blue moon. But you, you know, for her, she's got this thick, thick German Shepherd hair. That seems to be the only thing right. that gives her the stimulus between, you know, go and no, I guess. Right. No, it's huge. And that's on, that's on you. You know how to read your dog. You know, every dog is different, just like every person. You know her little quirks. And you know what tool to properly get that message across. And like you said, the, having that longer hair, that's exactly what I was thinking while ago. I just didn't say that. Uh, sometimes you just have longer hair, so you need that prong collar to get in there. Because if not, you're just going to choke the dog. 
And then you might, to me, that's just stupid because it's not proper training. You're just choking the dog and it's actually, you can damage the dog's throat that way. But people see the prong collar and it looks terrible and they think, oh, that's cruel. But it's not because you're just, you're causing the dog not to choke itself, which is actually using the proper tool the proper way and you're being smart. Same thing with a shock collar. People, I mean, I've, I've done it. I'll just, I'll be honest with it. I've accidentally shocked my dogs more than I should have. And you know what I did? I put that shock collar on my neck and I blast myself because I feel terrible. You can go get an e-collar and just, it's on you to use the tool properly. The, all the, all that's doing is getting the dog's attention. If you do a little bit of research on it, you're finding the dog's titration level, which is, it's like basically tapping the dog on the neck just to say, Hey, listen to me. So just because you have an e-collar on a dog, you don't have to like full blast that thing. I mean, um, just find out what your dog responds to. You can even just use the beep on the collar. Some dogs might even just uh, respond to that. They have vibrations and beeps. So yeah, I would just say it's, it's just all about educating yourself and knowing what's out there. And just because you think one thing is really bad, just do a little bit of research into it and look into some reputable people. Like, uh, there's plenty of Navy SEALs out there, dog trainers, um, Mike Ritland, John Devine, and my buddy Mike Toussaint. They all have really good training companies. Just do a little bit of research. But just train yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I had Mike on the, on the show, so he was another great yeah. guest. Um, so then with another thing that I see in the civilian world is, you know, again, I've got a shepherd. I, I walk her a lot. I used to run her a lot, but she almost seemed like she would pull a muscle as she got a little bit older she ran too much which is a little bit strange but um i'm not sure if that's muscular or if it's even spinal hopefully not but regardless i understand that she is a working dog and therefore needs a lot of exercise so each walk we do is at least two miles and then i'll throw balls and stuff in the backyard um but it seems to me and obviously it reflects even in our population's health a little bit that a lot of these dogs people oh i've got a terrible dog it doesn't behave and then you find out that it's in a crate all day never gets walked so what's your kind of education to us as far as the level of exercise that a canine in in general should be having yeah it just depends on the dog if it's a if it's a mouse, like you said run that thing at least once a day probably twice a day just it's on if your dog yeah that's um that's the answer to your problem if you say your dog's an asshole but you're leaving in the cage all day well who's the asshole (laughs) <laughs> yeah, then I'm going to make a t-shirt with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, yeah. You just know what kind of dog you're getting. I guess these people don't realize that sometimes people just see a cool dog. And I guess I've been responsible for it when I was a kid. You see a pit bull or a Wattweiler, just do your research, know what you're getting. If you, if you live in an apartment, don't get a Malinois or do get a Malinois. Leave that thing alone for 12 hours and leave them out and see what happens when you return home. You're going to have a new apartment. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be real nice. He's going to hook you up real good. But no, but that's not fair to the dog. And it also becomes a liability sometimes. Because if you don't stimulate the dog, the dog needs stimulation, physical and mental. And if you're not giving them stimulation, the dogs speak with their mouth, right? So the dogs the dogs might bite somebody because dogs will be pissed off. You're not stimulating it, whether it's mental stimulation or physical stimulation. Dogs speak with their mouth. You, you know, it could be a problem. Absolutely. Well, I got one more thing I want to explore and then go to some closing questions so I can let you go. But you mentioned the TBI therapy. What modalities actually work well for you? I mean, I think everybody's different. I think 
everybody should just try a whole wide plethora of things, man. I think starting my spiritual connection was probably number one. And then other than that's diet and just life changes. And I think everybody's different. Everybody should look into different diets alone, look into fasting, look into intermittent fasting. I think give everything a, a good, decent shot. Try everything multiple times. If one thing's not working, like people told me to meditate so many times and it just ain't happening yet. So you can fight that battle or you can just do a little bit more research and, um, like I started learning about breathing. So I incorporated breathing and there's like chanting you can start doing and there's all kinds of different methods that can try to put you in these different states. So when people tell you to meditate and you're just like, Oh, I don't know. It ain't working. And then you just give up, you know, that, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of that. And, um, even diet, you know, everybody's different just cause one diet doesn't work. Maybe a different diet works. Maybe the carnivore diets for you, maybe, you know, it's a plant-based diet, who knows, but just try everything, give it a good shot, like float tanks. And, um, I think, I think there's, you know, getting into a good uh, exercise program and a good stretching program is very beneficial. But I also, I try to, I think breathing is very beneficial for me as well to try to get me into a nice calm meditative state. So I also try to do my, my stretching while I'm breathing to multitask because, you know, I can't just, I don't have exactly all day sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. But I think every, yeah, but I think everybody's different. I think you should just try a whole plethora of different things and just put these tools in your toolbox and some of them work and some of them don't. And some of them you might need to, you know, use together. Sometimes people take CBD and do yoga or go in the float tank or, you know, do some breathing in the float tank or I don't know. Yeah, I but swear by CBD. Oh yeah, my buddy uh, Jason Higgins, he's got a he's got a good thing going with some CBD. He's uh he's doing some great things out there. Brilliant. No, I, I think it's incredible. Now you mentioned the the meditation. Have you ever tried the, the app Headspace? I have. Oh, okay, yeah. that's that's my I gateway. Sure I mean, I can't sit nice. there and just be you know in a, in a room quiet, but. Yeah, that kind of very basic kind of kindergarten level meditation is, is what's kind of opened the door for me. Definitely, yeah. Brilliant. And I'm going to try it again probably. So just I, I go I go through different phases. I think it's good for you to switch it up too, just like a workout program. If you get stuck on CrossFit for however many years, you know, you need to switch it up, surprise your body. So I think, uh, you know, just because I've been doing uh, my breathing doesn't mean I can't try some headspace again or even try some of that chanting stuff or whatever. I don't know look into a couple of different things and uh, see how it, see how my body reacts for sure. Yeah. And then Kirk, the, the seal I told you about that became a doctor, he has a, a sleep supplement that is incredible. So if you're okay. ever looking to improve the quality of your sleep, um, it's uh, I'll, I'll send you the, the link to it, but it's, it's amazing. I use it not every single day, but it's 30 minutes before you want to go to bed it will put you to sleep, but in it starts the cascade of sleep. It doesn't snow you with melatonin, so your quality oh, of sleep is normally a lot better. That's so huge these days. That's the, uh, the one thing I can't really complain about. My sleep has improved, but I'd, please send me that information because I'm always up to try new things. Brilliant. I will. All right. So then going to the closing questions, firstly, let's talk about the book. So the book is No Ordinary Dog. Where can people find that? Should be able to find it in all bookstores, uh, anywhere online, Amazon. And there's also, so there's No Ordinary Dog, and then there's also the young adult reader version of it, which is called Warrior Dog. 
Excellent. I'm gonna have to get that for my son. My son's dog crazy as well, but he's 13, nice. so he'd probably be fine reading the the main one. But fantastic. Yeah, right. the the main one isn't all that gory, but it has a few cuss words in it, and it is a war book, so it has a little bit of stuff in there. But we figured, uh, so I donated Cairo's vest to the 9/11 Museum, and it, um, <clears throat> one of the guys there kind of explained how well, number one, 9/11 happened so long ago that a bunch of kids. People these days don't even know what 9-11 is sometimes. And um, when they do come to the museum, you know, some items relate better. They get the point across other, better than others. It's like boots or helmets, whether it's, you know, from a soldier or a firefighter. And he said any dog items can definitely help, you know, kind of get the message across. So when I donated Cairo's vest there, it kind of opened my eyes to that. And I thought that was really cool. And I guess... Uh, they saw that same potential with the book when they read an ordinary dog, just no ordinary dog's a great book. It's like a, like I said, Navy seal Marley and me. It's great for anybody. <laughs> it's anybody, anybody who loves dogs or animals. It's a great dog story. It's a, uh, anybody that wants to join the military, be a dog handler, be a seal. And, uh, I think the kid's book is great for the same. Any kids that are aspiring to just even learn about what their parents do in the military or anything about dogs in the military. So I just, uh, I hope everybody, um, really enjoys Cairo's story and get something out of it. I guess to learn it's a piece of history. So um, I only had one shot at telling the, telling the story. So I was pretty nervous about getting it out there, but um, looking at the reviews online, everybody seems to love it. So I'm, I'm very happy. Yeah, no, they do. And like we were talking before we started recording, you know, I've been in, in grossed in that whole metadata reviews thing as I'm kind of trying to get ready to put my book out. And yeah, compared to a lot of them out there, it's been extremely well received. It's perfect. I mean, his dog book. Everybody loves dogs, and it's a. Uh, he was a great pup. Yeah, he really was. Well, it's a hell of a story too. But I listened to it on Audible, so for everyone out there, it's also an audio book, and that was the the uh, element I listened to. And it was you narrating, wasn't it? I did narrate it myself. So if you like hearing my voice, they said everybody would uh, enjoy it a little bit better. So I, I was like, okay, let's do this. Yeah, I think it turned out good. No, yeah. I, I agree. I think biography should be. You know, it's different if it's a novel yeah. or something, but. Brilliant. Had Cairo do it. <laughs> In spirit. Not participating. In spirit. He was there. <laughs> All right. Then the, the first of the closing questions. Is there a book someone else has written that you love to recommend to people? It can be something related to how what we've discussed today or something completely different. Oh, man. That's a great question. There's a, there's so many great books out there. It's hard to just um, recommend just one. Let's come back to that question. Give me a minute to think. Okay. And it can be more than one. It doesn't have to be just one. Um, same uh, same question, but a movie. Any movies you love? Um, of course, you go with Navy Seals with Charlie Sheen. That's <laughs> yeah. uh, any movies I love. Let's see. What we just watched the other day. One of my favorites, The Other Guys, one of my top comedies. Love that movie. Brilliant. I heard you mention it was was it with Mike Ritland? You mentioned um, Max. What did you think of that film? I can't remember how it went. I just um. I know I it's cried. Been a while since I've seen it. I cried I just, like a girl watching it. Did you? Yes. I can't remember. It's been quite a while since I've seen it. Um, yeah, it's hard for me. To <laughs> All right. Um. So the next question is: There a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? There's a bunch of great guys out there talking these days. You know, Jocko and Goggins, 
all those guys. I would say the same thing that goes with the books, the recent books. I've, I just listened to Jocko's and David Goggins has a great one. Dan Crenshaw just came out with a great book. Um, those would be Jack Carr with the terminal list. It's a good one. And then his, his uh, recent one. Yep. Jack was on, Jocko was being on, and then David's supposed to be coming on. But I think, I want to nice. say they're in a holding pattern for his new book. So hopefully when that oh, comes yeah. out, we'll get him on. Yeah, those are all really good. That's who I would obviously recommend. That's what I've been listening to recently, so might as well. Brilliant. Yeah. All right, so then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Well, I was <clears throat> wakeboarding a lot recently. Oh, really? Trying to trying to get back into a good training uh, workout thing, or uh, a good training schedule, but my boat broke, so... All good. Boats in the shop. But these days, you know, I just try to uh, do something physical, trying to enjoy summer. Just try to spend a lot of time on the water while the water's warm. Brilliant. But, yeah. Um, I love wakeboarding. Things have gone. Dude, I love it. It's, it's been, it's been quite with the, the whole everything getting shut down recently. Just, uh, the boat was working just fine. We put a lot of hours on it recently, but then, you know, nothing, nothing lasts forever. I hit a deer the other day. So my truck's gone. Then my boat broke. And then, you know, there's always something that comes in threes. So there's, there's been a couple of more things that have happened that I'm working through, but it's all good. We're going to get that boat back soon before summer's over. And we're just, I don't know, man, until then, I'm just going to try to fill my time with something productive. <laughs> well, I thought when you said you hit a deer, I thought you were going to say on your boat. I'm like, well, you're probably not doing that right then. <laughs> that would have been interesting. That would have been good. <laughs> all right. Now, man, it always comes in waves. So, but other than that, these days, just, you know, just trying to keep busy. Trying to get my boat back. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Fantastic. All right. What so, about you? How's everything going uh, on your end? Um, good. Good. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm actually, I had a good day today. I had the good. book cover sent to me. So yeah, it is a roller coaster. Everything is nice. up and down, but I'm, I'm on the upswing. I know you're, you're having issues right now with the, the boats and the trucks and the phones, but um, yeah. It's all good. <laughs> it's kind of put a, kind of put a delay on a few things but uh no it's great to be able to talk to you today was a great day as well yeah no i'd love to try to do something productive yeah it was a good conversation thank you just so that everyone knows how to reach you online where where's your answer oh, yeah. instagram handle and do you have any websites or anything you can just uh, send them towards yeah instagram is no ordinary dog book is my book page and then i have a personal page which is will cheese with three e's which is a little weird but it is what it is <laughs> <laughs> fantastic well will i just want to say thank you so much thank you obviously for your service but i mean that goes without saying but thank you for telling the story because i know it's not an easy story especially when you know when people come on and they tell not only the cool element of their story but the the vulnerable courageous part which is the the struggles whether it's physical struggles mental struggles and then the journey out, which gives people hope as well. But I mean, your story and obviously Cairo's story is something that everyone needs to hear. And so thank you for writing the book. But more importantly, thank you for taking the time and coming on the podcast today. Yeah, man, I appreciate you having me. That's one of the reasons of writing it. I get to tell Cairo's story. It's a big piece of history. I get to bring attention to some of the amazing things that these dogs do, which you know of. And then, um, yeah, if I'm going to be doing all that, I might as well tell some of my own personal story. I know there's a lot of people out there that are hurting. I mean, the veteran suicide rate is terrible, but there's a lot more people than just veterans that are hurting, whether it's military or first responders. You know, we all deal with our trauma in different ways and we all have to go through our stuff. 
And if telling my story can kind of bring attention to some of these modalities that might be able to help you, whether it's a, getting go getting a dog and making you happy or trying some of this hippie woo stuff, whether it's breathing or fasting or meditating, or I don't know, man, if I can get somebody's attention to maybe get them on the right path, and man, that makes me happy because I got to do something. So I don't want to waste my time too much. So if I can help somebody out, that, that really makes me happy. Yeah.